episode 108 of the TruthQuest podcast, The Truth About Reopening Schools. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as George Floyd, Michael Flynn, vote by mail, political blasphemy and heresy, or the outrage culture comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean.com. The video version of the podcasts are available on BitChute.com, Brighteon.com, and ThinkSpot. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Have you noticed an overwhelming level of opposition to reopening schools in the corporate press and among many Democrats nationwide? Why is that? Why is there so much hysteria from the lockdowns are the only option crowd? Let's give some of them the benefit of the doubt. They may be genuinely concerned. The news they consume largely condemns the very idea of reopening schools, filling their pages, websites, and airtime with apocalyptic stories of all the deaths that will most certainly ensue. Besides the minority of whom we give the benefit of the doubt to, the rest of the no-school reopening crowd are just fueled by hate. Hate of Trump and anyone who disagrees with them. They are fueled by a need for power. And who stands in the way? Well, Trump and anyone who disagrees with them. To them, everything's black and white. Orange man, bad. Their only job is to feed the hate, feed the discontent, sow seeds of division, manufacture fear. These are national leaders with one agenda, destroy the President of the United States, regardless of the cost to the country. Listen to episode 73, The Truth About Trump Derangement Syndrome, for more on that. So I will let Nancy Pelosi sum up the talking points of opponents to reopening schools. She recently appeared on CNN and went on a bit of a tirade. Well, that might be a bit of a stretch, since she spent most of her time trying to keep her dentures secure in her mouth. She can hardly afford to get too overexcited on national TV. Nonetheless, here are a few comments she made in this interview, which are being dutifully repeated by Democrats all over the country. Referring to the Trump administration's call to reopen schools, she called it malfeasance and dereliction of duty. She claimed Trump was messing with the health of our children. She then stepped up with this scorcher. Quote, going back to school presents the biggest risk for the spread of the coronavirus. They ignore science and ignore governance in order to make this happen. End quote. Side note, I wonder why we never heard her calling the rioting, looting, and burning of cities the biggest risk to spread coronavirus. Anyways, never once does she or any of her ilk quote, or cite a scientific study or article while yelling at everyone to follow the science. They just keep making ill-advised, panic-inducing statements designed to stoke fear and make people anxious and ultimately make Trump and the Republican governors look bad. Pelosi's final volley was to call for, quote, a science-oriented administration. As of this recording in July of 2020, we have dozens of school districts and some entire states around the country already refusing to reopen schools in the fall. I am about to utter words that should make me vomit, but here goes. Let's take Nancy Pelosi's advice. Oh, oh man, that was risky. Just kidding. 
Let's take Pelosi's advice and look at the science. Let's start our science-oriented episode with a look at the experience of other countries that have already reopened their schools, something Pelosi conveniently ignores. The Nordic countries of Denmark and Finland are reporting no increase in the spread of coronavirus since opening their respective schools. Denmark was the first European country to send children back to school and to daycare centers. It did not lead to an increase in coronavirus infections. Similar results were found in Finland. Back in May, more than 20 European Union member states experienced no spike in coronavirus cases in schools after reopening. Now we have some specific results from Germany, Thailand, and Israel, as reported on NPR. Germany's education system differs from state to state, much like the U.S., but in most of Germany, students have been back to school since May, mainly on a part-time basis, allowing for reduced class sizes and social distancing. Students still study from home some of the week. The German Teachers Union expect anywhere from 10 to 20 percent of their members to be away from the classroom because they're at, in an at-risk group. The unions are working to assign the at-risk teachers to online duties. In Thailand, before entering the school, temperatures are taken and hands are washed. Then there's social distancing once students get in the classroom. Now remember, Thailand only had a couple thousand cases with no new infections for several weeks, so it's more normal than Europe or the U.S. But if there is an outbreak, the plan is to lock it down, isolate, contact trace, quarantine, and break the cycle of transmission. Now, Israel's reopening is a bit more complicated and ugly. Anytime you hear or read a story opposing reopening schools in the U.S., they'll cite Israel. So what happened? Well, schools originally shut down because of the virus like everybody else, and then they reopened in May. Then they had to close schools again after 1,400 people were diagnosed with COVID, 47% of which were infected in schools. Over 2,000 students, teachers, and staff ended up testing positive, and over 28,000 were quarantined. Ouch. What the hell happened there? So from what I can gather, the Israeli health professionals urged the government to let schools resume, but only let kids under nine go back to school and keep it in small groups. But instead of just letting the younger kids go back to school, there were last minute negotiations about allowing the older kids back to school. In the end, everyone was back. Then there was a heat wave, so mask wearing was no longer mandatory. Then they saw a big outbreak. So the experts that I read claim that not only was the lax mask wearing a problem, but that was exacerbated by having the older kids back full-time in in-person school. But you also need to keep in mind that the Israelis did not enforce social distancing. They did not reduce their class sizes. They kept them at the same as pre-COVID. So there's lots of lessons to learn from the Israeli experience. So since this is the TruthQuest podcast, let's look at the evidence and see if we can arrive at the truth about reopening schools. As we examine the evidence in an attempt to determine if reopening schools is the right thing to do or, or how to safely reopen schools, I want you to keep a few things in mind. Number one, according to the CDC, in the U.S., children make up about 22% of the population, but kids account for only 2% of coronavirus cases so far. Number two, nearly 75% of deaths from COVID-19 occur in patients over 65 years of age. Now keep in mind, we're talking about reopening schools here, and the average age of teachers in the U.S. is under 40, so they're at far less risk of suffering death from COVID-19. Back to the COVID death. So of those 65 years and older, of those, approximately 90% had other underlying conditions. In the U.S. and Europe, more than half the COVID-19 deaths are occurring in nursing homes and similar institutions. Number three, 
the Foundation for Research on Equity Opportunity projects that children under 15 are 7 to 20 times more likely to die of the flu or pneumonia than coronavirus. And number four, the data that's come out now seems to show that the most transmissions occur from adults to adults or adults to children, not children to adults. So as I mentioned earlier, we're constantly preached to by Democrats of all stripes that we must follow the science, we must listen to the experts. Their entire ideology requires that rather than thinking for oneself, the masses must follow the advice of so-called experts like Dr. Fauci. Personally, I do not subscribe to their blind allegiance to experts' point of view because I know it comes from a place of control. I know it's liberty-restricting. But let's run with it. Let's start with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. Their recommendations for school reopenings include daily temperature checks and or symptom checking, face coverings for all staff and children over two, desks spaced six feet apart, staggered schedules, no cafeteria or playground use, install partitions and physical barriers as needed, no field trips, no toy sharing, and restrictions on outside visitors, including parents. The CDC director, i.e. the top expert, which should impress all the Democrats, Dr. Robert Redfield, said that he would absolutely feel comfortable sending his 10 grandchildren back to school with accommodations for one of them that has some pre-existing condition. Can we consider the evidence of the detrimental effect of no school on children themselves? Have you ever considered that prolonged sequestration at home has been linked to escalated rates of child abuse? It also seems to create major mental health problems with studies and polls reaching the obvious conclusion that loneliness, disconnect, and depression all have risen among children and teens. Then there is the dismal record of distance learning, which is a farcical misnomer. Very little learning is going on in the distance learning environment. Ask any teacher. Children need to be physically in the room with teachers and their peers in order to learn curriculum and thrive as human beings. Younger children in particular are ill-served by remote learning. According to a new report issued by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine that recommends students return to the classroom. That report echoes the opinion of the American Academy of Pediatrics, which recommends that, quote, all policy considerations for the coming school year should start with the goal of having students physically present in school, end quote. More from them in a minute. What about the lack of extracurricular activities? You know, schools provide counseling and nutrition for hundreds of thousands of children across the country. What about those kids? For many kids, school is the most stable thing in their lives. What avoidable chaos are they being subjected to without school? What about the fact that the school closures impose heavier costs on the underprivileged families? Not only because of the access to the school lunch programs, but to reliable internet connection. No internet connection means no distance learning. A recent German study concluded that children do not play a major role in the spreading of coronavirus. The study conducted by scientists at Dresden Technical University is the largest carried out on school children in Germany and found traces of the virus in less than 1% of the teachers and children tested. The scientists believe that children may serve as a break on the virus infection chains and say the results show that the virus doesn't spread easily in schools. These findings coincide with a report from European Union education ministers last month stating that the decision I mentioned a few minutes ago about 20 EU member states that reopen schools has not caused the coronavirus spike. So here's more evidence. Going back to the American Academy of Pediatrics, 
It also stated, quote, the importance of in-person learning is well documented, and there is already evidence of the negative impacts on children because of school closures in the spring of 2020. Lengthy time away from school and associated interruption of supportive services often results in social isolation, making it difficult for schools to identify and address important learning deficiencies, as well as children and adolescent physical or sexual abuse, substance abuse, oppression, and societal ideations. This in turn places children and adolescents at considerable risk of morbidity and, in some cases, mortality. Beyond the educational impact and social impact of school closures, there has been a substantial impact on food security and physical activity for children and families. SARS-COVID appears to behave differently in children and adolescents and other, than other common respiratory viruses, such as influenza, on which much of the current guidance regarding school closures is based, end quote. The evidence indicates that students, particularly young children, are low vectors for the virus. Researchers in Australia, as well as the World Health Organization's chief scientists, each have said that children as a group are largely not responsible for spreading the coronavirus. That study states, quote, SARS-COVID transmission in children in schools appears considerably less than seen for other respiratory viruses such as influenza. A chief scientist at the World Health Organization, whose name I am not even going to attempt to pronounce, said, quote, children don't seem to be getting severely ill from this infection. She continues, there have not been big outbreaks in schools where they have remained open, and that, that it seems that children are less capable of spreading the virus. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating that the World Health Organization has any credibility, but I'm including the quotes nonetheless. Science Magazine concurred with a recent report that states, quote, several studies have found that overall people under 18 are between one-third and one-half as likely as adults to contract the virus and the risk appears lowest for the youngest children. So I can imagine some of you out there saying, okay, the children can't be harmed by COVID, but what about me? What about grandma and grandpa? Everyone knows kids are germ factories. They go to school, they pick up all kinds of shit from their classmates, and they bring it home, which was no big deal when the worst thing they could bring home was the flu, but now but now we got COVID-19. So what's the deal with these asymptomatic kids passing the virus to teachers, parents, and others? But even here, the balance of existing evidence suggests this worry is largely unfounded. Quote, children under 10 are less likely to get infected than adults, and if they get infected, they are less likely to get seriously ill, said Carrie Safonson in an interview following the publication of, a, of an Icelandic study that he co-authored in the New England Journal of Medicine. Quote, what is interesting is that even if children do get infected, they are less likely to transmit the disease to others than adults do. We have not found a single instance of a child infecting parents. Should I repeat that last sentence? A report from early April by the British Columbia Center for Disease Control and Ministry of Health. Oh my gosh, what a mouthful. Anyways, that report stated, quote, There is no documented evidence of child-to-adult transmission. There are no documented cases of children bringing an infection into the home from school or otherwise, end quote. In another report released by the National Institute of Public Health and the Environment from the Netherlands found, quote, no indication that children younger than 12 were the first to be infected within the family. Rather, it remarked, the virus is mainly spread between adults and from adult family members to children, end quote. In Switzerland, kids are already allowed to hug their grandparents, per the country's head of infectious disease, Daniel Koch, who said scientists, quote, now know young children don't transmit the virus, end quote. 
The Netherlands Health Minister advises that data from the Netherlands has also confirmed that current understanding that children play a minor role in the spread of the novel coronavirus. Quote, the virus is mainly spread between adults and from adult family members to children. The spread of COVID-19 among children or from children to adults is less common, end quote. In an evidence summary of pediatric COVID-19 literature states, quote, low case numbers in children suggest a more limited role than was initially feared. Contact tracing from Asia, the United States, Europe, and Israel have all demonstrated a significantly lower attack rate in children than adults. It goes on, quote, coupled with low case numbers, which suggests that children are less likely to acquire the disease. Limited data on positive cases in schools have not demonstrated significant transmission, except within adolescent populations. Studies of younger children in schools have found low rates of transmission, but with very low case numbers, end quote. Need some more evidence? Consider five pediatricians who spoke with NBC News recently. They all said they would send their children back to class. Leaving the bubble-living left-wing lapdog anchor in the studio speechless. Do an internet search on five pediatricians, NBC, reopen school. It's quite amusing. One last piece of evidence that I think it's important for us to consider is how effective are these lockdowns? In other words, are the stay-at-home orders the right thing to do to fight the virus? In The Lancet, a Swedish infectious disease clinician and a World Health Organization advisor, Joanne Gisech, concluded, Measures to flatten the curve might have an effect, but a lockdown only pushes the severe cases into the future. It will not prevent them. Admittedly, countries have managed to slow down spread so as to not overwhelm the healthcare system, and yes, effective drugs that save lives might soon be developed, but this pandemic is swift, and those drugs have to be developed, tested, and marketed quickly. Much hope is put in vaccine, but they will take time, and with the unclear protective immunological responses to infection, it is not certain that vaccines will be very effective, end quote. So, as a public policy measure... The lack of evidence that lockdowns work must be balanced with the fact that we already have observed the economic destruction is costly in terms of human life. Yet in the public debate, lockdown enthusiasts insist that any deviation from the lockdown will result in total deaths far exceeding those places where there are lockdowns. So far, there's no evidence for that. In a new study titled Full Lockdown Policies in Western Europe Countries, the author Thomas Munier writes, quote, Total death numbers using pre-lockdown trends suggest that no lives were saved by this strategy in comparison with pre-lockdown, less restrictive social distancing policies. That is, full lockdown policies of France, Italy, Spain, and the United Kingdom haven't had the expected effects on the evolution of the COVID-19 epidemic, end quote. So the premise here is not that voluntary social distancing has no effect. Instead, the question is whether the police-enforced home containment rules limit the spread of the disease, and this researcher concludes, no. Another study on lockdowns, again, we're talking about forced business closures and stay-at-home orders from the government. In this study by American Enterprise Institute researcher Lyman Stone, in it, Stone notes that the areas where lockdowns were imposed either had already experienced a downward trend in deaths before the lockdown could possibly show effects or show the same trend as the year prior. In other words, Lockdown advocates have been taking credit for trends that have already been observed before lockdowns were forced on the population. Stone writes, quote, here's the thing. There's no evidence of lockdowns working. If strict lockdowns actually save lives, I'd be all for them, even if they had large economic costs. 
but the scientific and medical case for strict lockdowns is paper thin. He continues, at this point, I usually get the, what's your evidence that lockdowns don't work question. It's a strange question. Why should I have to prove that lockdowns work? The burden of proof is to show that they do work. If you're going to essentially cancel the civil liberties of the entire population for a few weeks, you should probably have evidence that this strategy will work. And there, lockdown advocates fail miserably because they simply don't have evidence, end quote. In an article for Foreign Policy entitled, Sweden's Coronavirus Strategy Will Soon Be the World's, the authors suggest that regimes will be forced to retreat to the Sweden model. They cite, as the pain of national lockdowns grows intolerable, and countries realize that managing rather than defeating the pandemic is the only realistic option, more and more of them will begin to open up. Smart social distancing to keep healthcare systems from being overwhelmed, improved therapies for the afflicted, and better protections for at-risk groups can help reduce the human toll. But at the end of the day, increased and ultimately herd immunity may be the only viable defense against the disease, so long as vulnerable groups are protected along the way. Whatever mark Sweden deserves for managing the pandemic, other nations are beginning to see that it is ahead of the curve, end quote. So this herd immunity concept, in its most simplistic terms, means that enough people in the population have been exposed to the virus, i.e. they have the antibodies to avoid being reinfected. This is important because it breaks the chain of the outbreak. So, so rather than test someone testing positive and in infecting 10 or 20 other people, the chain is broken along the way because one or two of those 10 to 20 people have the antibody. So the herd, that is all of us, is in effect immune from the virus. Like the Swedish cl clinician I mentioned a minute ago said, lockdowns and stay-at-home orders just push the cases into the future. But unless you want to shut down society forever while we wait for a vaccine, herd immunity is the next best thing. So here we are. Given all of this information, can we find no middle ground? Can we not recognize the fact that with children at home, it makes it difficult for parents to work, either working at home or back at the office? Can we not recognize that with fewer people working, the economy will take longer to rebound? Can we not recognize that with less income from the households who are forced to stay home with their children, that those households will be more likely to endure financial harm? Can we not recognize the social and mental harm done by the stay-at-home orders, the isolation and anxiety for everyone, and for children in particular, the loss of critical development time and loss of and lost instructional time? Did you know that child and spousal abuse, suicide, alcohol and drug abuse, and mental illness are all up since the stay-at-home orders have come down? Can we not recognize that distance learning is a joke? Can we not recognize the impact on the economy caused by the federal government's helicopter money? We are debasing our currency at an alarming rate. We print money, give it to people as unemployment compensation, many of whom make more than they did while they were working. We are going to see inflation like we did back in the 1970s. With all that said, I pose the question, for the sake of our kids, our economy, our household budgets, and our mental health, can we not find some common ground here? Can we not find a way to get our kids back into school for those who choose to do so? You heard many suggestions throughout this episode. We can have thermal scanners for temperature checks, mandatory masks, isolation shields for at-risk teachers, staggered schedules to limit classroom and hallway capacity, smaller class sizes. Since younger children are at a different risk category than older adolescents, the guidelines for the elementary and middle school kids can probably be different than those for high school kids. We can, have, we can enforce social distancing. You can move classes outdoors where necessary. 
We can incorporate testing. Older and at-risk teachers can work remotely. And we can have increased sanitation measures, hand-washing stations, and deep cleaning procedures. With all of that said, what do you think is the truth about reopening schools? Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.